0: Good afternoon. Was it evening? Which one is it? I never know until like six o'clock then it becomes evening. Good afternoon is what we'll call it for now. I'm Brandon Ash, as he said, from Providence Baptist Church, and I bring you greetings from both me and from Providence Baptist Church. This church plant is very near and dear to our hearts. Uh, If I was not an elder at Providence, I would probably be right here with you all serving, truth be told. So I pray for you all, think about you all often, And I'm very thankful to be able to bring you all the word. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll be looking at verses 23 through 28. Christ our Savior. Our text here in Hebrews chapter 7 is making an argument that Jesus is a great high priest who is both suitable And desires to save his people. It does so by showing the eternal superiority of the Son of God as a priest compared to those who temporally have held the same office. So Christ is the greater high priest than that of men, in part because he is the eternal Son of God. And this afternoon or evening, I want us to walk away with a greater urgency, expectancy, and trust in the salvific power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I want us to walk away with this trust is because I want us to know that the Lord Jesus loves us and he desires to see us grow in grace as our great high priest. So let me pray the Lord's blessing on our evening or afternoon. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, who is our great high priest, the Son of God eternal, and also the Son of Man who came down from his post in heaven, his eternal glory, to take on weak flesh so that he may be our high priest, both the one who stands as a mediator between God and sinful man and also the sacrifice itself. Be with us. Apply your word to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if I were to ask you guys, what is salvation? What is salvation? apart from Christ? What would you say? Nothing, right? I hope that's what you would say. But what if I were to ask you, is there another pathway to salvation apart from Christ? Those are not exactly the same questions. You would say no, right? And there is not an attainable pathway to salvation apart from Christ. Notice the wordplay there, attainable pathway to salvation apart from Christ. But the reformers, the second generation reformers, both Baptist and Presbyterian, taught that in the garden there was a covenant made between God and man. And this covenant between Adam, right, as the covenant head they would teach, promised life eternal for obedience. This covenant was called... The covenant of works. Some theologians call it the Adamic covenant. But the point of this covenant was, if Adam did not eat of the tree of the gar- in the garden, he would live. Or, the way that it puts it, if he ate it, he would surely die. So conversely, we can conclude that if he did not eat it, right, he would live forever. And this is why it was called covenant of works. Do this and live. If he did it, he would live. But we know how that story ends, right? He ate the tree, he died, and he brought death into this life for not just himself, but for all of his posterity. But the Reformers also taught that Adam did not just break a positive law by not eating the fruit, he also broke the very moral law of God expressed in the Ten Commandments, Essentially, what they were trying to convey is that he broke character, literally. By sinning against God in the garden, he literally destroyed the good nature in which God created him. God made him upright, morally um, upright before him without sin or blemish. He also broke the communion that man had with God before uh, his sin in the garden. And so he broke character with God by choosing disobedience rather than obedience. And this is what sets the stage for our need for Christ. Looking back at the garden sets the stage at why we need a Savior. Romans 5.12 teaches that the 5.12 teaches that sin and death came into the world and spread to all men through the one man, Adam's sin. And likewise, Romans 5.15 teaches that the free gift of the gospel is gifted to us in Christ through Christ's obedience. And so going back to the question, is there another pathway to salvation apart from Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, all in Adam die. And the Augustinian expression of this teaches what's called the total inability or total depravity of man. And what this doctrine teaches is that we do not, by virtue of sin, corrupt natures, pollution, have the ability to do what is pleasing to God. Therefore, no attainable pathway to salvation. Put it another way, if you die without Christ, then you will be judged in the same way that Adam was judged, according to your own works without bias how do you think that will end up for you? And so is there another pathway? No. There's only one narrow path. But in another sense, if you are not on the narrow path, then you are on the broad way, the broad path, which leads to destruction. And so we cannot obtain salvation apart from Christ. And that's why we need Christ our Savior. The Bible teaches that Christ fulfills the Messianic office through three sub-offices, that of prophet, priest, and king. A prophet, the duty of a prophet, is to reveal the will of God to his people. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Let's look at that briefly. Acts 3.22, quoting Deuteronomy 18.15, says that Christ is the prophet that was promised to the people of God. And it says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, you don't have to change that uh, turn. there. It says, long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so Christ is our prophet. He is the prophet who speaks truth, the truth of God on behalf of God to the people of God. The other office is that of Christ as our king. And this is different. This is not Christ's inherent rule as the eternal Son of God. Christ as our king in his messianic office, under his messianic office, was earned. It was a covenant, it was earned through covenantal obedience to what God required. Jesus came and died for our sins. His reward was, He was given. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, all authority in heaven and in earth. He earned that authority by dying for our sins. Therefore, he is our king, but he's different. A lot of people in society today want to tell you that Christ is the king. He's going to rule. He's going to come back, and he's going to dominate physically. But that's not what the Bible teaches about the kingship of Christ. Jesus rules in our hearts. It's a spiritual kingdom that he rules. by ruling. He conquers our hearts not through force, right? Through love and gentleness and constant, constant forgiveness and grace and mercy. That's how Christ is revealed to us in the scriptures, both in his humiliation and his exaltation. And so it's a spiritual kingdom. Christ is our king. And so if Augustine is correct that me and you have absolutely no ability to please God and obtain salvation based on our own works, then the very pursuit is illogical, correct? Right? We cannot earn that one-time justification for ourselves. Let me ask you a question then. Are you seeking to sanctify yourself in this life apart from Christ? Sanctification is part of our salvation. It's a full salvation, right? Are you seeking anything outside of Christ's rule for you? Fathers, in your homes, how do you rule? Do you rule with fear? Do you dominate your family? Or do you ignore them? Do you absolve yourself of all requirements of a husband, a godly husband and godly father? Wives, do you submit to your husbands with joy in your hearts? Or do you seek to dominate them and usurp their headship according to God's created order. How do you parent your kids? Is Christ in the picture? Do you consult God's word or do you rule yourself? Do you consult secular sources and elevate them above the scriptures? Christ is the good prophet who speaks truth to you. He's also the gentle king who rules your heart and he gives you good commandments by which to guide you by. And so are we looking to the Lord Jesus Christ? Christ promises that he will die. He he has died for our sins and all those who turn to him will in no wise be cast out. And this is what we get in his priestly office. It's the work of Christ dying on the cross for our sins through atonement in his humiliation. But we also get the high priestly prayer still to this day of Christ in exaltation. Interceding for us at the right hand of God right now. Christ prays for you. And that's what our text is about today. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 23. And please follow as I read God's inerrant word. It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds a priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens." He who he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So we're going to look at Christ, our Savior, through three main points. One, we're going to see the necessity of Christ as a priest. Then we're going to see Christ's necessity as the eternal son of God. And based on those two things, we'll see why Christ is able to provide a full salvation. Let's start with verse 23. Christ is ne- necessarily a priest. Starting in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we see the, we see The writer of this letter in Hebrews starts to make an argument that Christ is a great high priest who can in every way help his people because he is the God man. Hebrews 5.1 teaches us that the very purpose of the priestly office is an appointed role to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Verse 5 of Hebrews 5 shows us why Christ is necessarily a priest. It says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And so the idea of Christ being a priest forever is why he must necessarily be our priest. It's a difference in both value and efficacy. Hebrews 6:19 compares the work of Christ on the cross to the high priest going behind the curtain in the inner place to offer sacrifices for sins and calls this atoning work the anchor of our faith. And that's what we pick up in chapter 7. The argument is essentially between the eternal and the temporal, the value between the two. The Old Testament priesthood is insufficient According to verse 23, because it is enacted, I'm sorry, because it, but is insufficient, but it is enacted and protected under the Mosaic law. Therefore, the law needed to be changed. For a law to be changed, a new covenant had to be enacted, and therefore a new covenant head was needed. That's what verses 11 through 22 are arguing. Picking up in verse 23... The main point is that the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek because Abraham, who is the forefather of Levi, both paid tithes to Melchizedek and because temporal men need a succession plan. Think about the priesthood under Aaron. What happened? God established them to make sacrifices. But what happened when they were still in the wilderness? What did Aaron do? He took gold from the people of Israel and he made a golden calf. This is the great high priest. He made a golden calf for them to worship, to appease them. What about his sons, those who are in his succession plan? What did they do? they offered strange fire on the altar of God and were consumed by that fire these men were in they were ineffective and unstable because of their temporal nature when you have a temporal succession plan of priests you might get good priests one generation and you might get bad priests which we see throughout the old testament but it is not so with Christ Christ is the Son of God who, based on the regulated worship of God, kept the commandments of God. He says in John chapter 12, verses 49 through 50, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Christ is better as the eternal son of God, he's better as a high priest. He is necessarily an eternal priest for us because he will not waver. And that's good news. This teaches us to place our trust in Christ and not in, temporal, in the insufficiency of temporal men. So think about the world around us right now. How many platforms right now, even so-called conservative ones, are vying for your attention? How many of them are telling you which way to go? Brothers and sisters, we live in an era of tribalism. I I heard a preacher this this week telling a story. This is a reformed guy, super reformed guy, if you want to call him that. He did his dissertation in Thomas Goodwin, the great Puritan. He was the right-hand man to John Owen, if you know who John Owen is. And while he was reading these works, he found that this great Puritan quoted Jacob Arminius. And he said, well said, Jacob Arminius. Now think about that. Back in the days of the Puritans, they would, even even Calvin, they would even quote Roman Catholics if they made a good point on the doctrine of God, because it was about God's truth. In our day today, so many platforms and people are telling you to pick a side. You must be a tribalist. Pick your tribe. And if you're not with our tribe, You must not be saved, or you're not serious about your faith. But here's the reality of these temporal priests of our day they are insufficient. Why? They're like Aaron and his sons. They can be bought through temptation to sin. They are wayward. They can change their minds and often do to make their points or fit a point into whatever agenda that they have. Men have agendas. Christ has won the glory of his Father. You can put your trust in Christ as our priest because his mission is clear. God's glory and your good. And that is fixed. Jesus does not change that mission. He's trustworthy. This is why we believe in the ancient faith, right? The man who discipled me, when he sat me down, the first thing he told me was, I'm giving you what was delivered to me. This is the smartest guy I know, but it was the most profound thing I had ever heard. Because we don't need to teach and reinvent Christianity. It's the ancient faith. Jesus is our Savior. He died for our sins. And we can trust that Christ, because He is the eternal Son of God, and he shares in the immutable nature of his Father according to his deity, he will not change his love for you. He won't. He's not like men. And that leads me to my second point. Christ is necessarily the eternal Son of God. Look back at verse 24. It says, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The uniqueness of Christ as our high priest rests in the mystery of the hypostatic union that Jesus is. Jesus, as the God-man, holds a unique space in existence in that he is the eternal son of God sharing in all the essential attributes that constitutes deity expressed in the incommunicable attributes, namely the infinity of God. And the doctrine of the infinity of God just simply teaches that God is without limitations. This doctrine is expressed in multiple ways. One of them is the eternality of God. And what this simply means is that God transcends temporal designations of time and space. He certainly exists within time and space, but he is not bound by them. So think about your life. You have a past, you have a present, and Lord willing, you have a future, right? Christ is not bound in his deity by those things. The Godhead is not bound by that. He is the eternal God, And so, Jesus, being the son of God, is inherently eternal. But he's also born a man. And this goes back to the garden, right? There was a problem in the garden. When Adam sinned, right, there was a problem. God would have been just to destroy him, wipe it clean, right? But he didn't. He promised, in Genesis 3.15, a savior. But there's a problem, though, because how could someone make atonement for something as offensive to God as sin? Even a perfect man would not be sufficient for that cause. Even a perfect man unblemished by sin is not enough to atone for the offensiveness of sin because the value would not match the offense. And that's why Christ had to be the eternal son of God. We needed the value of that of, of that of that the nature of his deity to uh, to help in the person of Christ atone for sin. The great theologian A.A. A. Hodge says correctly that Christ's person, his offices, and his works are inseparable. He assumed humanity and became the God man in one person, in order that he might assume his office as mediator between the holy God and sinful man. And his office and work are alike inconceivable, except when viewed in connection with the unparalleled constitution and comprehensive range of his person. All that to say, you cannot, without going into great error, separate Christ's person from his works, from his offices. Many men have tried in history, and they've gone down and fallen on one side of the ditch of heresy. The point is, they are distinct, but you cannot separate them. So looking back at our text, the argument here is that Christ is a permanent priest because he continues forever. is contrasting the order of the priesthood according to Melchizedek, which is eternal, and the priesthood according to Aaron, which is temporal. And this teaches us two things. One, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Who was Melchizedek? He was both a king right? King of Salem, which means peace, and he was also a priest. He was a kingly priest. You don't see that anywhere else in the the Old Testament. And yet, Christ, like him, was superior to Abraham and his sons. Christ stands above all forms of sincere and false worship, the false worship of men, as the true and greater mediator between God and man. It also teaches us that he is superior because he has a nature like men, yet without sin, And by virtue of being the immutable son of God, he will never change in his love for his people. And this leads to our final point. Because Christ is necessarily a priest, an eternal priest, and he is necessarily the eternal son of God, he is therefore able to provide a full salvation. Look back again at verses 25 through 27. These verses get to the heart of the priestly work of Christ. They include both the atonement and the intercession. Verse 25 says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost, which means that he is able to provide a full and complete salvation to those who draw near to God. The idea here is that the grounds for a full salvation is based on the work of Christ on the cross, which provides the one-time event of justification by faith alone and provides a pathway for sanctification unto holiness in this life. Salvation is grounded in, the just, in justification, but it's certainly broader than that. So when we say that Christ is able to save to the uttermost, what we're saying is he is able to save according to all the promises of God under the new covenant. God promises in Ezekiel 36 that he will give his people a new heart, and he will write his laws upon them, and he will... Vindicate his own holiness and justice by causing his people to keep his commandments. That's sanctification. That's part of the salvation that Christ offers, the full salvation. So, in other words, not only does Christ's work change us internally, it continues to work to conform us to his image. And part of the way that Christ does this is through his intercessory work on our behalf. It says that he lives to make intercession for you and for me at the end of verse 25. Many people teach that while on earth, Christ was a priest. But the moment he ascended into heaven, he only became a king. I I disagree with that. Christ, like the high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf when he ascended to heaven after making sacrifices so that he can intercede for us so he can intercede for his people. And so what this means is that the eternal son, the great high priest, is right now in constant prayer for you and for me. And so what do you see when you look at the cross? What do you see? Christ is not there. When you see the cross, the only thing you see is what the cross symbolizes. It symbolizes the work that Christ did on our behalf, the sacrifice that was made. It's good news that you do not see Christ when you see the cross, right? Why is that good news? Because he is still on your behalf as your mediator interceding for you. He's still working on your behalf. Think about it. Christ died on the cross for your sins. One time event justification. He sent the Holy Spirit as your helper to help you in this temporal life, continual work of sanctification. He ascended to the throne, walks walks in as the great high priest, the king of glory. He now sits enthroned as the kingly priest at the right hand of the father. So think about that. Christ is praying for you in a state of exaltation. And I hear people say this all the time. Jesus did not have to do that. Do you agree with that? He doesn't have to still pray for us. We have the Holy Spirit who Romans teaches us that he's also praying for us. But I don't agree with that. Jesus absolutely has to steal work on your behalf. Why? Because he is in his very nature, the Messiah. He is the Christ. He cannot divest himself of his love for you as your savior. He cannot put his love for you down, even for a second. In his very nature, it's written, Christ loves you so much and he still prays for you. That is profound. Do You pray for you? You pray for those who you love? I bet you don't do it all the time. Think about that. Christ, the eternal son of God, left heaven to become a weak man, to die on your behalf and my behalf. Atonement, sacrifice made. Went through all of this suffering. He bore the wrath of God, came out clean on the other side, ascends to heaven, work finished, reward given, all authority given to him on heaven and on earth. First thing he does when he gets there is he pours out his spirit on his people at Pentecost. Second thing he does, he sits at his throne and he prays that our faith would not fail. Christ is our Savior. And in his intercessory work, he's still speaking a word for us. The blood of Christ speaks a word for you. And when the father, in, in analogy, looks over to the son, he sees him on his throne, the king, on his throne, praying for you and for me. What does that mean for us? Do not use the grace of Christ as an occasion for sin. Do not waste. Take advantage of your Savior. Christ is praying that your faith would not fail. He's given you a good law. He's given you a Holy Spirit. He's given you a church. He's given you the saints. He's given you his word. He's given you no excuse. His salvation is end to end. He's in constant prayer for you. And so when you pray today or tonight or tomorrow, will you meditate on the reality that as you pray, the Son of God is still working on your behalf, joining you as the man of prayer in prayer for you? And he does that because he cannot put down his great love for you. Praise be to God for such a Savior. We also see the next few verses something of the atoning work of Christ. Remember, under the Mosaic law, the high priest would kill the sacrifice in the outer part of the tabernacle. Then he would enter the tabernacle and sprinkle blood seven times on the altar, and that blood would make atonement for sins. And the blood makes atonement because the blood, according to Leviticus 17, 11, contains the life of the sacrifice. There's a whole dissertation written on this, by the way. I wouldn't encourage you to, to read it. Um, You maybe. (laughs) And so we know based on the very book, from this very book of Hebrews, that the the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot save anyone because it's not sufficient. And the doctrine of the atonement starts back in the garden. Like I said, God could not simply overlook sin according to his own justice. And so a sacrifice had to be made if men were to be brought back in communion with God. And so God, according to his own good pleasure, chose to save a people from for himself. And the value of Christ as the Son of God, yet his nature as fully man, provided the perfect sacrifice for sins. And this is the uniqueness of Christ as our high priest. He's not just a man. He's not just the man of God making the sacrifices for sin he's also the sacrifice itself. Verse 26 speaks of how Christ is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, which means that he is pure. He has a pure and suitable nature to make atonement, a perfect sacrifice for sins. But verse 26 also says that Christ is exalted above the heavens. And when it says this, it speaks of the nature of God, that his very value, his nature, is of more value than created things, even the best of them, like the host of heaven. And this, and that is because Christ is of more value, it allows him to make a once and for all sacrifice for sins. And this is why verse 27 says that the eternal son of God has no need to offer multiple sacrifices like the sons of Aaron. He doesn't need a succession plan because he is ultimately of more value than all things. He's eternal. He never dies. He's immutable. He never changes in his love. And he never sinned. So he is equipped to go beyond making atonement for sins. He also can enter into the holy of holies as the glorified king. And so the God-man who atoned for his people also intercedes for them at the right hand of the Father. And this is why Christ is trustworthy. Our Savior, Jesus, is worthy of worship. As our great high priest, he shows us that he is superior to temporal men who die. He continues immutably forever, and his very nature compels him to never change his love for us. He shows that He he shows that he still loves us by continuing to pray for us. And we often devalue prayer on this side of eternity. But, like I said, the fact that Christ prays shows us the very need for prayer. If Christ's intercessory work on your behalf as your great high priest does not encourage you to pray, then there's no other source. Jesus is praying for your ailments, Jesus is praying for your faith. Jesus is praying for your eternity because Jesus was the sacrifice that made your salvation possible. He continues in his uh, high priestly work. And so, like I said earlier, take advantage of our Savior according to his works. Pray with Christ. Confess your sins to Christ. Walk in the obedience of Christ. But more than that, turn to Christ. When you sin, what do you do? Do you repent? Often, repentance should be the most normal thing in your life. Did you know that? A lot of people are afraid to repent, even more afraid to confess their sins. But the Bible is clear. We're sinners. That's the most normal thing about us at this point. That's why we need such a Savior. So my final charge to you as we close is to look to Christ with full trust and assurance in his ability to save you because he is the eternal son of God with unchangeable, unchanging, unwavering love for you. He will never put you down. Even when you put him down for a season, he still welcomes you as your high priest who has died for your sins and he prays for you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, who is the great high priest. We thank you for his work on the cross. We thank you for him dying for our sins, and yet he has ascended to his throne, and on his throne, his action is not to enjoy simply to enjoy his works, but to continue to work on behalf of his people. I pray, Father, that we would look to the faithfulness of Christ as we prepare our hearts for the supper. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.